Popey, a couple of things right off the bat here. First of all, I'm stuck in this open office concept called share space at work. It's code for get no work done. But if there are interruptions here from my boss, we'll just ignore them. But from anybody else, hey, we're just going to go with the flow here. Comes with the territory, like your dog interrupting the podcast a couple of weeks ago. So because you're because you're out in the open, though, you have to watch what you say, right? You can't be like completely honest or can hell no, I, completely honest. What do you want to know about how management around here sucks? How we're lucky to still do what we do with the morons that run this place? Is that the kind of honesty you're looking for? Or now, now taking applications for kitchen arranger play by play people, please email us at farwellandpope at gmail.com. Keep that email address in mind if you would like to be a sponsor on this show. We're always looking for new sponsorship opportunities or partnership opportunities to get your business name onto this podcast. I know it's called OHL Stories, but a quick note out of the dub. Here's to Les Lazarick, 2,000 games called with the Saskatoon Blades, or as I like to put it, almost half as many as Don Cameron called. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I, and that in no I, way, I don't mean to diminish Les's work. Great job. That's a huge milestone for sure. But yeah. Les has been around forever. I know. And it's 4,300 for Don Cameron. <laughs> Give or take a few. Crazy. Uh, it's nuts when you say it like that, because I read the Les... Uh, the, the post about less and I was like man he's been around forever that guy and I follow him on Twitter he's kind of like the the western hockey league know-it-all if you will right if you want anything any knowledge of the western league you go to less and I saw the number and I was like man that is a lot of games and then you put it into perspective like that as to what Don did and it's that's a crazy number yeah so credit to the Saskatoon Blades for a video they put out with alumni sending congratulations you can check it out on my Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL, or if you were following the Saskatoon Blades, you would have seen it there. Uh, Poper is at underscore Chris Pope on Twitter. He just talked about following Les Lazaric. Maybe you want to do that too. Uh, we all, the only thing we're missing, just if you're on Twitter, check out the hashtag Don Cameronisms because it'll bring back the only thing that was missing from the Twitter or the twatter, as he would have called it, is Don Cameron's presence. But that ship has, uh, obviously sailed anyway at underscore chris pope at farwell underscore ohl on twitter and then farwell and pope at gmail.com is the email address we had a game uh mid sorry first, you, real quick i just have a yeah. quick question real quick yeah and we didn't talk about this but i'm curious now there was no chance in hell of don ever getting twitter but you spent a lot of time with him more than i did if don were to get twitter what do you think his first tweet would have been oh my gosh that that is a question, Popey. Uh, yeah, because he would not have had the patience for Twitter at all. No. Uh, his, his first, Don Cameron's first tweet. See, now, the first thing that came to mind was legend, but he would never call himself that. So Don Cameron's first tweet would have been some obscure piece of trivia from the OHL of the 1970s, probably. Like, uh, reference to a player and his heavy shot off the wing or something along those lines. Or maybe it would have just simply said, how does this thing work? One or the other. That's good. And, and of course, that tweet of the obscure trivia would have mentioned the kids' parents' names, too. Because, <laughs> of course, Don would have known that. Of course. Right? That's, yeah. the, way, that's the way he was. Uh, I, well, I, like that. I like that idea better. I was, I was guessing it probably would have been, if he could figure it out, with all due respects to Don, a link to House of Friendship. That's the only thing I thought that Don would want to push on Twitter. But then I thought, would he know how to post a link? And I really don't know. 
Well, see, that's why I had the pause. Now, this becomes really interesting because I was trying to think, okay, if we're actually going to have the conversation about Don Cameron being on Twitter, and even when he was still with us and Twitter was very much a thing, it was well past something that Don ever would have used. But when you asked the question, I thought, okay, let's just take the Don Cameron that we knew and loved and make Twitter something that he was using and could use and was interested in using. So the very coherent storytelling Don Cameron, what would he say in 140 characters or less? It's pretty, hey, you got a suggestion? Tweet us or send us an email, farwellandpope at gmail.com. What would Don Cameron's first tweet have been? How about this? The rest of you suck. Like, Farwell, Pope, move over. I'm coming back. I'm, I'm better than you and you know it. <laughs> so while we're on... Reference. The topic of uh, of Don and, of course, the team he called 4,300 games for over 55 years. I don't know about you, Popper, but Tuesday night this week at the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium, first game when fans were allowed back in the building, albeit only 500 fans. The same night, the Niagara Ice Dogs were hosting the Mississauga Steelheads. The attendance on the website anyway in St. Catharines at the Meridian Center, 500, maxed out. The attendance in Kitchener listed on the site in the game summary and what we saw with our own eyes, 325. I'm just going to put it this way. Never did I think I would see the day that the Kitchener Rangers, and I know there are a variety of contributing factors here, but I'll leave it for your thoughts, but I never would have thought I would see the day, at least not again. It harkens back to the early to mid-90s with the Kitchener Rangers when the franchise was kind of struggling for attention and a whole bunch of other things in town. I never thought I'd see the day where you couldn't sell 500 tickets, 500 to a Kitchener Rangers game. It was alarming, to be honest. Um, It was shocking. But it's one of those things where you and I are maybe a little too close to it. And we kind of, I don't want to say live, but we remember those days in the early 2000s when it was insane to get a ticket, when there was rumors of a 10-year waiting list for season tickets, right? Like, it's not there anymore. There's a lot of other ways to spend the dollar. OHL fandom has really gone down, I would say, especially since COVID. We've seen the numbers. The Rangers only broke 5,000, what, three times this season? Yep. So, and the majority of the people at a Ranger game are season ticket holders. These season ticket holders when capacity got cut down, they were wondering, are my season tickets going to be valid? Some said, you know what, forget about it this year. I'll be back next year. So when they put 500 tickets for sale, general admission, those season ticket holders, if you remember, they did a survey, the Rangers a little while ago, uh, before the season that was canceled was about to take place. And they said, if you're a season ticket holder, and we only have a certain amount of capacity, would you be willing to sit in another seat? There was a vast majority of them that said no which is crazy to me because you, you want to go to the game, don't you? It doesn't matter what seat you're sitting in. But I think these fans that have been season ticket holders for so long are so adamant about their routine and where they sit and what they do. So to say to them, hey, you have to race to the box office online to buy your ticket to be one of the 500 to come watch this game, it's a lot for the season ticket holder to do. I'm sure their mindset is, you know what, I haven't been to a game in a month because I haven't been able to, I'm not going to race to the box office to grab a ticket. I'll wait till fans are allowed back at 50%. And even with 500, I still think there's some people that are a little timid of going out into the open, being around a big crowd. So I, 
as shocked as I was, I see why obviously the vast majority of people didn't show up. Yeah, COVID is obviously a factor in all of this. And, and you talk about those routines that season ticket holders and Kitchener have sort of fallen into over the years. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be blunt about another piece of it too. We are cheap in this town. I speak as one of the cheap residents of the city of Kitchener, okay? We come by our frugal ways, very honestly. If you've ever seen on Twitter or heard the offhand comment about what about the water fountains at the odd, it usually comes from Sanaya Supergi. It's near the top of my mind because it came very recently on Twitter. Sanaya, of course, is a previous guest on this podcast. She's making reference to a post-game show that I was hosting, I don't know how many years ago, when the lady, and forgive me for forgetting her name, but called in and the question she wanted answered was, what happened to the water fountains at the odd? Why did they take them out? Because she would bring in her own vessel to fill with water because she didn't want to pay the prices at the concession stands. And I'll take you back further and cop to my own cheapness. I come by it honestly. Now, granted, we were a family of five kids. So I think my parents had their share of financial challenges or they were obviously being careful with their budget. When we would go to games as a kid, we would pop popcorn at home put it into a brown paper bag and dad would carry it into the arena with us and we'd still eat it not even warm really but that's what we did for our snacks during the game people are still doing that sort of thing to this day you know the the conversation when you even whisper the idea of paid parking for a Kitchener Rangers game. That's one of the things people talk about if the arena were to ever be relocated to a more central downtown location. Oh, if I have to pay for parking, because of course there is ample parking for $0 and zero cents at the odd. We are C-H-E-A-P capitalized cheap in this town. So when you have season ticket holders who are told you're being credited for this game, you're getting credited back the price of your season ticket, which is less than the walk-up price and now if you want to go to the game, you got to go pay. you got to pay full price. you got to pay walk-up price. I'm not paying walk-up price. I do believe COVID and that cheapness is a factor. I'm going to throw one more in, though, because I threw this out on Twitter after the game because I was so surprised. And let's just call him Joe Ranger fan. And I get it. Not fan of Joe Ranger, the goalie for Mississauga. Just, you know, average Ranger fan. And said, you know what? I gave up my season ticket last year when there was no season. And I don't miss them this year because all I see is the same soft team again and again. You might remember a post-game interview with Sheldon Keefe, head coach of the Leafs, a few weeks back after the Leafs, they were struggling a bit. They'd blown a third-period lead. He called the team soft in his post-game comments. I don't think there's a bigger insult to a hockey player or a hockey team than that label of soft. And I'm not saying average Ranger fan here is right, but to your point about the early 2000s, in the Pete DeBoer, Steve Spot era that started right around the late 90s into the early part of the 2000s, the tradition, the culture, the winning and the, the sense that came back to this organization, 2008 is the last Memorial Cup championship. And I think maybe if I'm the organization, I'm keeping a pretty close eye on the what have you done for me lately crowd that might be a part of your fan base. Yeah. For sure. And I, that's definitely part of it. I think if the Rangers are near the top of the standings, the place is probably 500 people full. But 
there's still that fan, like even on bad years, the Rangers still have six to 7,000 fans in there every night. So they're like, even on a bad year, even if the team is soft a rebuilding year, if they're missing out on the playoffs, there's still 7,000 in there. So to see it not even get 500, if, if, if you're working for that franchise and you're not concerned, I think you ought to be. Yeah. I think, I think that's a great point. So, but just a real quick story on your cheapness. Cause that made me yeah. laugh when I, when I was younger, I used to go to the games, my grandmother and my father, my whole family worked at home hardware back in the day. Well, they used to have home hardware nights. And during the intermission, you'd go into uh, the, the, the warm room that you can watch the other two rinks that in behind the coffee stand there. Right. And they'd have like food and stuff set out, whatever. Well, we were younger and we, you know, grab popcorn and go and watch the game, whatever. And I remember coming out at the end of the game and I was with my grandmother. She took us and, uh, she said, are you guys hungry? And she goes like this and she opens up her jacket. She had stockpiled before going back to the game. She had popcorn, chips, hot dogs, pop. I don't know how she had so many pockets in her jacket. I remember just looking at her going, what are you doing? (laughs) There's so much food in your jacket, but she wanted to make sure that we were eating and we weren't going to pay for it. That's for sure. If there was free food around. That is hilarious. So let's just hope that as we go to the rink tonight, as of release of this podcast, it's a Friday. Uh, just it's scared me for a second. Five hundred fans. Come on, of course we can get five hundred fans. Yeah, I scared you because you thought maybe did I miss a rescheduled game? Yep. Uh, we'll That's talk exactly about rescheduling uh, before we get to our guest on this week's episode of OHL Stories. But let's just stick with fans and three hundred twenty-five, five hundred, whatever the number happens to be. Thank goodness there were actual bodies in the building. So they can do away all of the arenas with the piped in sound. It's, it's bad enough from what we've heard in Kitchener. But when we were in Sarnia last weekend, look, I, I love you game ops. I know you're doing your best in a really tough time. But holy cow, to, to quote or to paraphrase Spinal Tap, the entire sound system was turned up to 11 at Progressive Auto Sales Arena in Sarnia last weekend. And whatever it was they were piping in for crowd sound was so loud. I don't know what it was supposed to be. It was like being in a hurricane, gale force winds. I don't know. I could feel it in my face. Oh, it was awful. Please, Sarnia, just take it back down to about an eight, please. It was unbearable. We were, for people who don't know, we were the type of headphones like Firewall's wearing right now, if you're watching on YouTube, that go over your ears, the cans, what we call them. And uh, I could hardly hear myself in the cans from how loud the music was which is unheard of. Like normally I keep one ear off so I can hear the crowd noise and everything and then hear ourselves. But I had both over and I could barely hear myself talking in my headphones. It was so loud in there. And then going down for post game afterwards, there wasn't a player or coach that likes the fake crowd noise. I understand why they do it. And even in Kitchener, they do it, but they have it really low in Sarnia. It was extremely loud. And then they'd go to the music and the PA announcer too. Like there were no fans. I don't know. I have to be so loud. Like at least you got to dull it down a little bit to go with the atmosphere of the rink. You just have to, the players know there's no fans there. I asked Mike Petizian, is it difficult to play on the road in front of no fans or is it easier? And he said, I don't even notice once you're in the game, you're in the game. You don't pay attention to the crowd. And the crowd noise was unbearable in there. I, I hated it. I understand why, teams are piping in the crowd noise but you got to keep it low like it was so loud in there yeah it was it was bad and I think just even moving forward when it comes to the fan experience in your arena and I joked with you 
when we were in Sarnia. If it's if it's too loud, you're too old. Because I've had that said to me how many times now? But over the years, I, I remember Barry being a particularly loud arena. Look, I'm all for having a good time. And I, I love me some music. And Barry was cranking out some good rock tunes that night. But there's a certain level that I think is acceptable, enjoyable before it goes beyond. I didn't buy a ticket to a concert. I bought a ticket to a hockey game. So just even when fans do come back, I, I would just encourage all of the teams to consider the in-house experience, but it was certainly way overboard for an empty arena. I mentioned Barry as one of those loud arenas regularly. Another one that comes to mind, Sudbury. Maybe not so much the music during the game, but that train horn or that train whistle when they score a goal, my gosh, that is deafening. I think that's part of the appeal though. And one of the other parts of the appeal up there in Sudbury, of course, is what I call the mangy mutt like that. You can, you can say whatever you want. You can paint a romantic picture of the wolf on the wire, but that thing has seen better days. They need to, they need to send it to a taxidermist to get restuffed and give it a good grooming, get it to the local pet salon and, and get it groomed up in my opinion. But if you want the romantic side of the wolf on a wire in Sudbury, Oh man. Rogers and Sportsnet through Hometown Hockey made a fantastic video about this thing. An unreal video. They did such a good job with it. And in talking with current coaches and former players, um, it was awesome to get um, their viewpoint of what it, what it was like to play in Sudbury with that wolf and some of the stories of it being stolen. We've had one of those stories talked about on this podcast. I think it was Mike Stubbs talked about it before this year on the, the preview of the London Knights, uh, the time when London stole the wolf. Um, it, it's just, it's one of those things that makes the OHL the OHL. And I love seeing the wolf come across the wire every time they score. Uh, I, I sent out the tweet and tagged um, the Sudbury Wolves and their owner in it and said, when they build that new, <laughs> when they build that new rink, I want laser beams coming from the wolf, but then they go to the crease. How awesome would it be if you're an opposing goalie, you get scored on, and all of a sudden your crease lights up with a red laser from the wolf's eyes. So all eyes are on you. Not only is the red light behind you, your crease is red. That would be so intimidating and just sucks so bad, but it would be so awesome to see. Uh, it's, it, again, it's one of those things that makes the OHL the OHL, and I hope it never goes away. This video, if you have not yet watched it, please do. It won't be hard to find through Hometown Hockey or Sportsnet. But the we, we call them name keys in the business. So when you see somebody on your TV screen and they put their name, the name of that individual, we call that a name key. And the, the some of the people that were name keyed in this video, you know, you get their name and then their description or their title, local beauty. I mean, how can that not, I, I want to be that guy. Like, just call me Farwell, the local beauty in Kitchener. Just a great uh, name key for, for some of the fun in this video. I like where you're going, but with the laser beams, because the way you describe that and lighting up the, the crease after you've just been scored on, I can see the, the intimidation factor there. Maybe get into your kitchen a little bit. I, I like the, the older school nature of it. It's just this mangy wolf on this wire that comes you know, Clothesline. floating out from the corner. So let's not, let's not, let's not sex it up too much. Let's not go high tech. Let's just keep it this wolf on a wire. The only thing I would like to see, I'd like to see it move a little bit faster. It comes out like it's as old as the arena for, you know, like I think they've already it dropped is, the though. puck. For, I, well, 
Exactly. <laughs> I think they've already dropped the puck to start the next play, though, by the time the Wolf makes it out to center ice, and then they got to haul the thing back in again. Make it Get a zip line kind of thing going. Get her out there quicker, pull her back in quicker. But the Wolf is great, and that video is fantastic. I was honestly shocked, and there's no other word to put it, shocked, Mike, that it's done mechanically. It comes across so slow. I honestly pictured somebody in the back on a rope. Same. Like a same. Like I'm picturing in like the arts, you know, pulling the curtain. Yep. Like that's what I pictured. Somebody pulling this wolf across, but it's actually done mechanically. So hopefully in the new rink, the mechanics are a little more up to date and not built in what, 1940? 51. Yeah. 51 is that what it is? The video truly captures though the essence of the wolf and it it really just is a, a great little slice of junior hockey in this province. You have to remember Fantastic. the Wolves have been around forever yeah. in this league. That's and true. You, they, we don't talk about them maybe as much as we should as we have franchise as a pillar in this league. And that Wolf has been there, I think, since the beginning of time. So, <laughs> yes, it's weird and, yes, it's old, but that's part of it. Yeah. When you go there, you see that if you're a Quentin Musty, the rookie in the sub for the Sudbury Wolves drafted first overall. If you're Quinton and you go in there and your first game, you see that come across, you think, what are the names that came before me? Stalls, Hunter. How many people saw this wolf go across? And now I'm seeing it go across. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Carlisle, Felino could go yeah, through a so bunch many. up there too. Joe Bowen and, and Rob Falls, yeah. both on this side of the broadcast side, both went through that city it stops on their career all right before we get to our guest it feels to me chris and you and i have even talked about this in between podcasts you know do you feel like in on our broadcasts are we are we talking too much about the fact that you know we're into the month of february we're only halfway through the schedule all of the games being postponed is something being rescheduled are we are we dwelling too much on it but the reality is this is the cloud that hangs over this season the the league is doing its best to get in 68 games this will probably be the fourth, maybe fifth podcast in a row. We're talking about this issue. Uh, my preference remains slice some games off the regular season, maybe even shorten the first round of the playoffs. But whatever you do, leave the Memorial Cup where it is. I don't think you want to move that and all the impacts that go with that for the host city, et cetera. But what we are hearing as we head into this weekend's action is that the league, in fact, intends on extending the regular season by a couple of weeks. So instead of ending April 3rd, probably around April 17th, and then just pushing everything else back two weeks, including the Memorial Cup, which will now start around June 17th or so. I, yeah, and we both talked about how logistically we both felt that that would be a nightmare for the city of St. John, but I don't think you have another option unfortunately. And all signs are pointing to that Memorial Cup being pushed back. I think on the large scale of things, they're just worried about completing the season. And I said this on our broadcast. If I'm in the league office, nothing is off the table. Like David Branch has said, the only goal we have, I bet you they have a giant whiteboard. And on that big whiteboard, all it says is finish because they are finishing the season one way or another. The CHL, the OHL is finishing the season. It doesn't matter if the Memorial Cup has to be played at the end of May or June or July. They are finishing this season. And I think that's the right call. Well, yeah, I, I, I see where you're coming from. I don't, I don't know that it would matter if it was 58 games versus 68 games, but your point's well taken. I, yeah, and you know, you're right. I see you doing this Money. on the on the camera with the, you know, rubbing the fingers together. And 
I guess in fairness, the teams, the four that will not make the playoffs, why do you deny them three, four games of home gates when we should be back to full capacity where they can make some money, which they didn't make any of last year, as opposed to just, you know, shortening the regular season and allowing the playoff teams to make that revenue. It It's a fair point. So and you, can't, you can't, and you can't tell the 16 teams that do make the playoffs, Hey, sorry, you know, some of you are only going to get one home gate. If we're going to do a best three out of five, you're only going to get one home date. And then they're going to say, why? Because so St. John can keep that day for the Memorial cup. How's that fair? How are we worrying about one franchise versus how many others across the CHL that are missing playoff home dates? So I, in my mind, I don't think, I'm sure it's on the table, but I can't imagine too many teams and too many governors want to see a shortened regular season or a shortened playoffs. So that's why I think pushing the Memorial Cup back, while logistically it's probably not great for St. John and all the hotel rooms and businesses that they have planned, all the events they have planned, all the staff and volunteers and all that, I'm sure it's logistically a nightmare. But it is the best case scenario to move it now in in February to at least give you guys some time to get things planned in St. John again, replanned for this Memorial Cup. And then that way, the teams that actually do make the playoffs in the CHL are actually getting their home gates. Yeah, and you you touch on why I think it's so important and, and why I would be reluctant to move the Memorial Cup. It's not so much about the Sea Dogs as a franchise. It's about the city that plays host. We've been to Memorial Cups before. We know what the event is around the games themselves. And I'm looking at this particular Memorial Cup and thinking, Talk about something to look forward to, right? In early June, mid-June now, but assuming, and I'm taking, I know, I think a bit pretty big assumption here, but we're out of all this COVID stuff again. We're back to, you know, living some some normal feeling lives. Then I know fingers are crossed, right? But wouldn't that be something to look forward to if you're there in New Brunswick, right? And of course, the Maritimes are so clustered together. You might be coming in from Halifax as a Mooseheads junior hockey fan, whatever, come across from PEI, take your pick. So that's the part that I'm, I'm thinking more, frankly, about the city, the host city and what, what the city of St. John has to go through even more than the franchise of the Sea Dogs. But anyway, when, please just do us this favor. When the league and and Commissioner David Branch announces that the OHL season is being extended by a couple of weeks and we're moving the Memorial Cup, send him an email and say, Farwell and Pope already told me that on the podcast. Come on. Just let him know that you heard it here. He's got enough stuff to deal with right now. (laughs) Let's give Branchy a break for once. What, you want to be the man? Then you're going to be the man. He gets a lot of heat on a regular basis throughout a regular season. Everything he's going through right now, let's give the guy a break. He got the season started. He's postponed some games. They got some scheduling stuff to do. Let's give David Branch a bit of a break. Okay, if you say so, but only for one week. Only for one week. You never know what's going to happen between now and the next podcast. Why don't you set up our guest for this week? Absolutely. Um, He has a close relationship to one of our former guests. He's been around the game of hockey for 30-plus years as a head coach, general manager, scout, mentor, consultant, and as he likes to say, most importantly, a parent, uh, former head coach and general manager of the Oshawa Generals, and quite a few ties to some big names, as we'll hear, ladies and gentlemen, Chris DePiro. Well, Chris, I think there's a lot of ground to cover here, including uh, so many of the players that are now still making great careers in the National Hockey League that you had a role in developing as a coach. But I want to go back even further to the to the roots of that 
coaching because we look at the hockey DB and you see some junior hockey time in the Central Ontario League and then some OUAA, which, my gosh, back in the day, not trying to age us here or anything. And then one game in the coast and into coaching. What led you from on the ice to behind the bench? Yeah, you know what? Great question. First off, thanks for having me. Certainly appreciate the opportunity to, to talk here tonight. Um, yeah, you know what? For me, it was, I mean, I played hockey at the University of Toronto for, for five years. And, uh, you know, I, I did a phys ed degree and, and just kind of always had this mindset of, of wanting to coach and, you know, kind of doing that. And uh, But my second year at, at U of T, we actually did a trip to a team team trip to Europe and played some games in Europe. So that kind of sparked this whole kind of idea hey wouldn't it be great to play hockey in Europe and and I you know I mean I was a, I was a okay university hockey player but you know certainly it was a, it was a lot of fun and, and enjoyed my time so after I graduated I had a chance to play uh, uh play in Italy go to Italy and that's you know my my family heritage is Italian so it was kind of a, a cool thing in that respect um came back season was over and I was able to go down to play in Roanoke in the East Coast League um, and Mike, I got one game, scored a goal, broke my wrist, and that, that ended the old pro career right there and then. So, um, coaching here I come, and uh, that that I, the following year I ended up becoming an assistant coach at the University of Toronto. So, yeah. You remember that goal? I do, and you know what's funny? You know what, Chris? We we played uh, we played in a neutral site place. We, I was in Roanoke. We played uh, we played in Winston Salem. North Carolina. And I, I, I'm trying to think of who we played, but long story short, I do remember the goal. We lost four to one, but late in the third, I was coming around the net and a defenseman came in and, and kind of stumbled. And as he stumbled, he kind of got my arm kind of wedged between, you know, him and, you know, I had my lower left hand on the stick and against the boards and it just, you know, it really a fluke play. And I just broke my wrist and, um, yeah, I was just, that was, I was literally, I went, I went to Roanoke on a Wednesday and I was home by Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help but think tips though. That's a, that's a wee bit of a, of a field of dreams, moonlight Graham story where he gets into a game, but never gets up to, to bat. So you scored the goal, which is awesome. But when you look back now, that, that one pro game, it's a hell of a story, score the goal, break the wrist career over. But how, how do you, how do you view that now at this stage of your career? Yeah, you know what? I, I look back on it pretty fondly. I mean, and, and it was kind of neat because it was just like, you know, I love, I all, I've always loved the game, and 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 so there's a couple things. There's a couple guys that I played hockey with at U of T, um, and the three of us would always just we just ate up the game all the time, stats and followed everything. We just debated, and you know, and one of them is Troy Mann, who's the head coach in Belleville with the Belleville Senators in the American Hockey League. So. You know, we we maintain friendship. Another one's a guy named Tim McNamara, whose son Luke is a is a player uh, plays on Saginaw. Um, so you know, the three of us were just, and we're still good friends to this day. But it was kind of nice when you know you go like we have these stories and and we all played you know kind of beyond our university days. But we had no delusions of grandeur that we were going to make the National Hockey League. But it was just because we loved the game and we wanted to play. And and that experience for me, as I said, was five days, and uh, it was one of those things where it just you know. It, looking back, I'll tell you, you know, it's funny how you can look back and connect dots. Um, although I didn't play with this guy while I was in Roanoke, he was in, in Roanoke earlier on in the season as a guy that um, I ended up working with in Oshawa. Um, he was our head scout, Mike Kelly, who also scouted for the Kitchener Rangers. And Mike had played that same season in Roanoke, but we never played together. But 
we kind of, as we were kind of working together in Oshawa, it just, it's funny how you just, you, know, you start trading stories and uh, you start connecting that way. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Obviously that blue Jersey behind you, that's uh, St. Mike's <clears throat> your coaching time with the buzzers at St. Mike's in the OJ. I believe it was, Oh shoot. I can't remember the year. Maybe it was the, right before you won your first championship. You had a, uh, scrawny young kid come in from Bowmanville by the name of Mike McKenzie. What was he like as a player? So, so I got, I got to backtrack on you there, Chris, because we actually, so the year that we, like, so we went to the league finals, my last three seasons with St. Mike's. Um, and in that time period, the league was so big. You had like to get to the league finals was five playoff rounds. So that year, the, the, my third last year, we went to the league finals, but in the semifinals, we played Bowmanville. And Mike was a rookie on that Bowmanville team. Actually, he wasn't a rookie. He's played in Oshawa the year before, but he played on, on, on Bowmanville. And we knocked them out in six games. And then we, we ended up playing Aurora, coached by Marty Williamson, who coaches Barry Colt right now. And uh, they, had, they had 18, 20-year-olds, and we had the youngest team in the league. So it, just, it was a mismatch. They only lost two games all season and uh, we, we took them to six games and it was uh, a, like, it was an unbelievable experience. Um, unfortunately we lost. Uh, we had guys like Andrew Cogliano. Um, we had a guy like uh, a guy by the name of uh, Daniel, uh, Daniel Vukovic who ended up winning a, a national championship at Michigan state um, and just a handful of really good players. Uh, Jeff Kurzakis was on that team. He's an assistant coach with the steelheads in Mississauga. Um, but that summer, you know, we acquired Mike because Mike had kind of, I think was looking for a change. And, and uh, so we brought Mike into St. Mike's um, and, you know, the next two years we won the league championship and, and Mike was a big part of that from uh, right from the get go leadership, character, um, all the, all the things that uh, you see him doing with the Rangers right now in terms of, you know, running, running a great program. And uh, you know, he was just, you know, in, in the second year with us, he was a, he was a co-captain um, and was just a big, big reason why we won back-to-back championships. And, uh, and Kane Teasey, who's a former goalie coach with the Rangers, um, I always say is the only goalie in, in OJ, OPGHL history. You know, he won 14 out of 15 playoff rounds, which you think about those three years we went, we played 15 playoff rounds and Kane won 14 of them, which is unheard of, unheard of. We are led to believe, Chris, that uh, Mike McKenzie's competitive nature has always been a part of him. Yes? 100%. <laughs> um, so, so much so. And I'm not talking out of school here because it was in the story. This story, I'm going to tell you, was in Bob's first book, Hockey Dad, I believe, where we were in, we were playing in the, the uh, that second year, we were playing in the Dudley Hewitt Cup finals uh, against Georgetown. And bear in mind, we had beaten Georgetown in the league finals in six games. And then because Georgetown was hosting the regional Dudley Hewitt Cup finals, they got a berth in it. And so we ended up, as through the tournament went on, we ended up playing them in the finals. A um, couple shifts in, you know, Mike, unfortunately, you know, uh, took a penalty that ended up making him, you know, he ended up getting knocked out of the game or, t- you know, uh, uh, asked to leave the game, I guess, the better best way to take it. And, and, uh, because of that competitiveness and and it was one of those things where you know what it, it happened and I remember after the first period you know Mike was very very distraught and I remember just saying to, you know I caught Bob and I said to Bob you know hey listen I think 
you know, he's going to get Mike to, you know, get the pom-poms out and start cheering his team. We need him. We need that leadership. And he was great. Mike was great after that. Just kind of understood and let's go. And, you know, because he wanted another opportunity, to be, you know, to play because the winner of that game would go on to the Royal Bank Cup. And, and unfortunately we lost. And uh, yeah, but Mike, Mike's competitive nature was, was, you know, again, what made him such a very good player and a great leader. He was a great leader for us. And, uh, you know, I think those kinds of things were, were, you know, always a hallmark for him. And, and certainly, I loved it. I loved it as a coach. He was, he was a treat to coach. Cause it was never, you never had to wind, wind them up. So it was awesome. Another Mike who actually has some ties to Kitchener was on one of your teams as well, or sorry, Mike, Mike from Mike to Matt, Matt Halischuk. Uh What was, what was Halischuk like? You know what? Probably like he, he was awesome. You know, and Matty was one of those guys cause he was so unassuming and so understated and here he was this, you know, he was a Toronto kid uh, drafted, I think at that time, second round by the St. Mike's majors. And, and he was kind of second or third round, but anyways, he ended up, you know, th- because of the majors were playing at St. Mike's they were, and we were affiliated. We ended up reaping the rewards of having him come down and play for us. Um, he, he was, he, he injected skill. He injected just this, this, I guess, that, like I said, this under un, un, unassuming understated leadership because he just was never really, like a braggadocious guy. And, and uh, you know, you just, you just see this guy go through his business every day, being the same guy, the same player. And just kind of was, you know, like I said, super skilled, just, he was pretty competitive in his own way. And and he really was a, a big, big part of our club, you know, and it's great. I mean, I saw the success that he had, you know, in, at the OHL level world juniors. And it, like, it just, I was so happy for him because it just, it, 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 it you know, he just, he was such a, a great in, injection for us at that time. And, uh, yeah, he was, he was, he was, he was a special player too. You've used the word leader and leadership an awful lot already in this conversation. And I know how much it means and matters to you. Who, who were the leaders that mentored you maybe when they weren't even recognizing it, who mattered to you along the way? Yeah. You know what? I guess I always go back, you know, first and foremost, my parents, you know, um, and it just, I keep, you know, I, I, again, I grew up, my, my, both of my parents came over from Italy when they were really young. So they were educated here in Canada, but just the, the, the environment they created at home and, and just my love of sport through my dad. Um, but what I did, Mike, when I was growing up, like I love watching sports and obviously hockey the most, but I always gravitated to the coaches. I always gravitated to, you know, maybe the GMs, how did they build that team? And you kind of just start picking and looking at different things. And as you get older, you know, as I said, I played hockey at University of Toronto and Paul Titanic was my coach there. Um, and Paul had, co- you know, ended up coaching afterwards, leaving U of T to coach, you know, the Markham Waxers team with Stan Coast and Delzato and Gaunts and, you know, some pretty good players and they won the OHL Cup. Uh, but Paul was my coach for five years. He actually gave me my start in coaching and, and I learned a lot from him um, and learned how to how to just deal with the day-to-day grind and, 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 and kind of how to create a program. Um, and then after Paul had gone on to, you know, as I said, just kind of, he left UFT, uh, Darren Lowe took over as head coach and, and Darren Lowe, um, I was his assistant for two years and Darren had, you know, phenomenal experiences as a player. You know, he played at the UFT, played for the Canadian Olympic team in 1984, played in the NHL with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, and then he was a teacher and then a coach. And he just had this way and this presence about him that I learned a lot from him. So you just start to glean these little nuggets along the way. 
But as well, what I did, I was a voracious reader. I still am. I just love picking up leadership books or biographies or things on success and just kind of taking all those things and putting them in a pot and trying different things along the way. Uh, my first head coaching job, I don't know if I was ready for it, but it, you know, I figured, you know what, we got to get after it and make this happen. And uh, that, you know, that was at the tier two junior A level with the Brampton Capitals. And, you know, I think back on those days, it was great. You know, you just do your best, but you, you start to learn through it and you just keep kind of growing, you know, and, and, uh, and I can say this, when I went to St. Mike's, you know, the majors were there and I had a front row seat to watch Dave Cameron run his program. And when he came in to coach that team and, and took that program really to the next level. And um, I learned a ton from just watching him picking his brain periodically um, and yeah, so there's a whole bunch of people, Mike, that, that, that really kind of influenced me and impacted me. Um, so yeah, whether it be, you know, the overt hockey and, and, and sports people, but even just the, like through the books and, and, and things that I like to, to, you know, consume in that regard. In doing this research for this interview, I took a look at your U of T teams that you played on. Um, there wasn't a lot of information, but one guy had some stats and that was Tom Warden. Did he, do you remember, did he actually have, 30 points in 30 games plus 200 penalty minutes. If you knew Tom, Chris, yes. <laughs> <laughs> How is that possible, especially in university hockey? <laughs> if, again, if you knew Tom, you, you, you'd understand. He, he just, Tom was 6'4", big hulking guy. Um, probably the funniest guy I've ever, I've, I've known. You know, just, he's hilarious. He's actually the director of athletics at, at Lakehead University. He's been, that, been there for like 20 years. Um, just a brilliant, brilliant man. Um, but just, uh, he was a great teammate. I'm happy he was on my team. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was, he, he yeah, yeah, that was, that was, uh, those are legit stats. <laughs> 200 PIM in 30 games in university hockey. Fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. You talk about the, the books that you've consumed and, and, and you do to this day. And, and we've been talking a lot already about, uh, the, the players that you've had a hand in developing some of the guys that you've played with, but one of the books that I, I know that you've come across is one entitled talent is overrated, which again, considering the talents that we've already talked about and we're going to talk more about, but what does that phrase? What does that book mean to you? Talent is overrated, especially when we're talking about professional sports. Yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's a great, that's a great book. Um, I think Jeffrey Colvin was the guy who wrote it, but, and, and uh, he, he, uh, yeah, he does a deep dive into it. I, what it means to me, Mike, is more about, I, I believe that, you know, the, the premise of his, his kind of thesis is really about him saying like talent is, is, is essential, right. But it's also, it's useless if it doesn't have a, a you know, working smarter, working hard along the way. And I think, you know, those things have to come in together. And, and you guys, you know, you, through experience, I'm sure you've seen a lot of talented players who unfortunately, for whatever reasons, do not progress to the next level or progress to the levels maybe that everybody assumed that they could get to. And I, I don't want to presume to understand all the reasons why that's the case, why they don't make it to where they need to. But I'm going to make the assumption, you know, big one is maybe not working smarter, working hard along the way to, to match their talent or leave, or at least be supersede their talent um and I'm, I'm always struck by uh kobe bryant you know they asked him you know there's that question they asked kobe bryant about how he always wanted to be remembered and the, the natural inclination inclination is to think he probably would have said all his championships and mvps and 
He just said, I always wanted to be known as a talented overachiever. And here's one of the greatest athletes of our time, certainly one of the greatest basketball players of his generation, if not of all time. And he just says, I want to be known as a talented overachiever. That's, I think, what I think is, is at essence of, of what I believe is, is, is key for, you know, you see the elite performers and, you know, and, and I, I have to, I have to bring in a guy like John Tavares and, and, you know, John, for me, you know, having the opportunity to coach him in Oshawa, like, man, that guy just worked. He just, you I mean, every day he just worked. And, and so, I, you know, he's, he's certainly talented, but his work ethic superseded his talent. And, and, you know, I think that's where his leadership lied too. And, and I keep coming back to that word, but I just think there's, there's the impacts that, that athletes can have on, you know, their dressing room and, and then the communities itself. But um, I just think that's, uh, that's what that means to me is really just that the Kobe Bryant quote, but within that talented overachiever piece. I'm sure we'll get more on JT in a little bit, but I'm just curious, you won the, you win those two championships in the OJ and then you go to Oshawa, but as, an associate or an assistant coach in that transition. Did you feel like, did you have other offers for a head coach in the league or did you feel like you maybe deserved a head coach coming off two championships? Yeah. You know what? That's a great question. I don't know if I, if I ever felt deserved, like I deserved to, I, I just, what I, it, it's funny. Cause I remember after the first of the two championships at St. Mike's, I remember saying to my wife, you know, I would love to be able to do this full time. Cause I was teaching at St. Mike's and teaching a full course load and then coaching this junior eight team. And, you know, I just, I, I, at one point you sit there and say, I'd love to coach full time. And, and the, I never had any opportunities from a head coaching perspective in, 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 in uh, full disclosure there. Um, so when the opportunity came up with Oshawa, it was one of those things where, yeah, I, I, I talked to them and, and had a, had a great conversation. Um, and then I figured, you know what, why not take the opportunity to take the leap? And because, you know, you're presented with this, this, this kind of option and it was great. And, and ironically enough, that last year that I was, uh, that I was coaching with the buzzers, um, I did some part-time scouting for the Kitchener Rangers. And uh, because, you know, um, Steve Spot and I, you know, know each other since we were, we were kids. And, and then through Steve, I got to know Pete DeBoer. And so, um, so that year I, I was doing some, some, uh, some part-time stuff with them. And, it was ironic because then I got the offer to go to Oshawa. So I really couldn't partake in the draft with Oshawa. And that's when they drafted Michael Delzato. Um, and because I had to recuse myself because of my knowledge of, of, of Kitchener's kind of uh, draft table. So anyway, it's just kind of a, a tie in there. But um, when I went to Oshawa, Chris, it was really with the intention of learning about the league, you know, understanding a little bit more and really to coach full time. Yeah. What a laundry list of, players that came through in your time there we already talked about Tavares Brett McLean's there Cal Clutterbuck is there uh you know it just the the list was was pretty lengthy with the players that Delzato was the one I was trying to come up with there too Delzato Dahan yeah like it just incredible talent that you had there but to what you were saying about Tavares a moment ago Chris what what did that work ethic look like like we've heard lots of stories about guys you know i gotta have a thousand shots a day i'm gonna be up or last one off up early to run before practice last one off the ice that sort of thing what what did it look like in reality it was it was just his day-to-day habits and he was kind of like at the forefront of rolling out before practice after practice like that wasn't a thing back then and now everybody rolls out and you know he'd be in the weight room and and he'd be you know just 
the, the care that he took with his tools, his sticks and his equipment and, you know, all those little things that he did um, jumping, you know, the one thing I, I, that struck me was really after a practice, he would grab Sean Murphy, who's our, who was another uh, assistant coach at the time. And, and he would Murph and him, they would work on diff, like crazy things, you know, flipping pucks from the corner to bat in from the side of the net or, you know, like just stuff that, you know, may never have happened again, but, John wanted to be prepared because if it did, he, he was ready to go. And him and Murph worked a lot, lot together after practices, which was fantastic. It was those kinds of things on a day-to-day basis that were, it was just to me was the example. Um, and yeah, it, it's just, I, I, I always, I, I'm always struck because it's like, you know, here's a guy, you know, in, you know, he comes in, at, you know, when he comes in at, as a young guy and has success right away and just kind of has this spotlight, but yet he just never, never was really, not uh, complacent is the word he never was. And I think that's where the, I think the biggest piece of the work ethic is, is not being complacent in, in where he's at. And, um, and it's just funny. Cause I used to, I had a saying that I used at St. Mike's and then I brought to me with Oshawa and put it on our, our, our weight room wall. And it was, don't just play, be a player. And I kind of painted it on, on our weight room wall. And John was always like, what does that mean? Like, what, like coach, what, like, what, what does that mean? And I just used to say, being a player is taking care of everything. It's just how you tape your sticks, how you tape, you know, if you put tape on your shin pads and, you know, some guys are just willy nilly and, but just, you know, it's the idea of being able to, you know, look at yourself or view yourself more than just a guy who plays the game. John always did that. I think he just, you know, a lot, he understood it as he went on. Um, and it was pretty, pretty cool that, you know, um, that he was able, you know, he's still able to have success, to, you know, at, at the age he's at now. So I'm, I'm really happy for him. So take us back to when you're at St. Mike's, you obviously know about John Tavares and then you go to Oshawa and as a 16 year old, he scores 73 goals. <laughs> Is that all? That's all. <laughs> yeah. 73 or sorry, 72 and 134 points. Watching that on a day-to-day basis as a 16 year old, there had to have been some days where you just thought to yourself, I got the nicest gig in the league coaching this kid. He, it was the best way I categorize it. It was almost like he was, he was playing a computer game where, you know, when you come like those are the games, you know, it's a one-on-one and, and usually, you know, the, the, the defender has like a step, like a mind, you know, okay, he's going to do this move, but John was like two steps ahead and he was able to do things that just were, were, um, unreal. So you hear about these things, about the skill set, you, you know, his abilities, hockey sense. The one thing that really struck me, Chris, his competitiveness when he lost a puck, his just tenacity and desire just to get that puck back. Like if you're a defenseman in the corner with him that got the puck off, your first two, three strides better be quick because he's coming right back at you. And and it just that that part you know, I learned and was like, came to appreciate, uh, you know, quite, quite quickly. It's hard to talk about the Oshawa generals without talking about the Peterborough Peets. And we've had a lot of guys from different sides of that rivalry on this podcast tips. And we know, we know the game is a lot different in, you know, the early to mid two thousands than it was in the seventies and eighties. But what was the rivalry like? Do you have any memorable games? You know what, when you play them eight times and it, and obviously that rivalry uh, between the towns, between the, the organizations, I mean, the history, it's, uh, it's palpable, man. It's, it's, it's not something that you take lightly. And, and uh, you, you know what, there's, 
there's so many different games. I mean, and, and funny because it, it just there's we had great battles, just great battles. You know, no different than I'm sure you know, like you see Kitchener, London. You know, like there's so many great rivalries in the OHL, and I mean, and that they're historically based, which is fantastic, right? So no matter who's coaching or who's managing, who's playing, you feel it when you're when you're there, and uh, it's hard to pinpoint any specific games, but. Uh, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know, Mike, but I can tell you they were pretty physical. Um, they were, they were great, just great physical battles and emotional battles. Um, you know, we won, we lost and, and, you know, it was kind of a, and everywhere in between it was, it was, it was pretty, pretty cool. You mentioned can't talk about Oshawa without talking about Peterborough. I don't know if we can talk about the generals without bringing up Brian Boyce. What, did, what does he mean to that organization in your mind? Well, I mean, he, he's going to get, you know, I don't think he's going to get a jersey retired because he doesn't have a number, but he's going to have a banner in the, in, in the rafters without, without question. And, uh, you know, like, I mean, I, iconic status. Um, and and I, it's funny because I remember, I, and I don't, I'm losing time at track of, of years. Maybe it was, it was the 11, 2011-12 season or 10-11 season where um, I remember I got a call from Scott Salmon, Hockey Canada, and he's like, hey, Dips we need Brian Boyce this year. And like, he, he's, he's our, he's our gold medal ticket. Like he's our, he's our good luck guy, but we need his professionalism. We need his, his knowledge base, like all the things that Brian brings. So that, that's the kind of reach that Brian has. Like when you, you know, I mean, it's not like it didn't go out to an interview. It just went, Hey, we need Brian Boyce. Can you, can you, can you spare him kind of thing? And, and uh, it was like, like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you I mean you you look at Brian, Brian Brian is uh like again he's iconic there and uh and uh, rightfully so rightfully so. You mentioned Hockey Canada. You had that opportunity yourself uh as a member of the coaching staff with a U18 gold medal team. What's that experience like? You know, it was it was fantastic. Um and again it was one of those things where you know, we had a we had a great team, you know, that 92 birth class team um you know, from, you know, Sean Couturier, uh, um, you know, Jeff Skinner, we had, uh, um, who else? We had uh, Eric and Branson, uh, Tyler Tafoya, hand, like just guys have had pretty good NHL careers and, and, and whatnot, but it was just a good group. You know, we had, we, we came together quickly. Uh, Bob Bugner was our head coach and Mark Hollick was the other assistant coach and he was out, out in the WHL and, uh, you know, we, we came to get, you know, came together quite quickly as a staff and then brought the group together. And uh, what a great experience. Hockey Canada's, you know, they just do a fantastic job. And, and, and uh, the one thing that I really, really um, loved was the organization of, of how they, you know, the, the, like the structure of how they go about their business, the standard of excellence that they have. Um, but what was really cool was the debrief process in terms of, you know, assessment of every player. Um, assessment of, of the experience um, and and then ultimately where hockey Canada I think you know they when they say they're not leaving any stone unturned um, bear in mind we won the gold medal we won the gold medal going away I think nine two in the finals against against Russia um, so it's pretty and you know pretty kind of I'd say handily the only tough game we had actually was against Sweden we, we won three two and they had a guy by the name of Gabriel Landeskog on that team um, that would have been should have been the gold medal game but Hockey Canada wanted everybody on staff to pick three things that could have been better. And here we were, like, I don't know if anything could have been better, but you you start searching for things. And so the point being is that I I really came to appreciate their their standards of excellence and and that willingness to 
to always kind of challenge themselves to be better. And I think that's why it's, you know, there's such a great organization. With your time with the generals for two and a half years, you had um, Scott Sabrin on your team. What were you thinking about when Austin Matthews checked the back of his Jersey to see who his name or who he was? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so bear in mind, Scott, Scott came to the Oshawa generals as a free agent and, and, Another, I'm going to say another connection to, to the Kitchener Rangers, Hugh Craig was a sc- longtime scout. His son, Mike, was our, was our Eastern Ontario scout, lived in Cornwall. He's the guy who said, hey, we got we to bring this kid to camp. And so when he came to camp, um, you know, we kind of, you know, gave him a look and gave him a you know, longer look and ended up making the team. And, and, you know, obviously had a pretty good OHL career, enough to, you know, get him an NHL career. So when Matthews did that, I was a little upset because it was like, hey, you know, give the kids some respect, you know, and 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 whatnot. But uh yeah, Scotty was just a kid who just like again came in, didn't really, you know, just didn't didn't expect like he, he wasn't coming in to be cocky. He just came in and played. And it was so refreshing because he just went and played and um and did everything that you know he did. And it was just, you know, he and he got better and he got stronger and you know, and certainly, uh, you know, as he got older, he just he became more comfortable and confident in, in the league. But certainly, I, I really appreciate it. He, he made the team because of that work ethic and attitude because he didn't come in and, you know, he just earned everything. He basically earned everything, which was fantastic. I can completely understand that feeling of a guy that, that you got to know so well. And then you see this happen to him, you know, in his professional career. And and listening to these stories with you today, Chris, it it just reminds me as if we needed the reminder of how small the hockey world really is, right? You touch a life here and it, it comes back at another point in your career. How much are you still in contact with guys that you coached over the years? You know what? Periodically, you know, it, 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 and it, it's not like a, a overt. Like, I mean, there's a couple of guys from, from the buzzer days that I'm, I'm a little bit like Andrew Cogliano and I kind of talk a lot in terms of, you know, you know, him just a little bit more than, than, than I guess, uh, you know, others, and I mentioned Daniel Vukovic, and you know, when I had an opportunity to coach in Switzerland, I reconnected with Vuki, and he was because he was playing at the time in Switzerland. Um, JT, you know, kind of once in a blue moon, Delzato a little bit more. I talked to, and then and then through other people, like you know, and just again through that network, you start, hey, so and so says hi, and you know, hey, by the way, and so that 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 happens a lot, right, within the game, and and it's kind of nice to have those touch points through through the years, and uh, it does bring back some good memories. I got to ask on behalf of every Kitchener Ranger fan out there, 08, 09, John Tavares is on the trade block. You have to move him and Delzato to London. Do you have to do that? <laughs> Both of them? You have to bring that up, them. eh, Chris? You have to bring Both that of up. Them. Yeah. You couldn't have split them. No, let's give them both to London. So they've been, <laughs> they've been having a rough go lately, the Hunters. You know what? Let's give them one of the best players ever in this league and throw in Delzato. Yeah, but the Windsor still beat them in five, right? So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Um, that was just, uh, it was such a unique time for for, for me because um, I'd become taken over as head coach and general manager. Um, and it was just a, you know, the, the you kind of go through everything, the gamut of, of all, all different options, right? You, you set up, you know, you set up for all these different options and, uh um, the one thing is, is that, you know, and, and John was really, really good about it. He just, he kept on saying, if, you know, you don't have to trade me if you don't feel the Oshawa generals are going to get a good deal. And, and it, so it, it allowed me from a negotiating standpoint to know that in the back of my mind, 
that I can I can push and push and push to you know to to what I wanted. But on one level too, then Chris, I'm on the other end trying to see what I can add. You know, so it, you, you kind of go through all these different you know kind of chess pieces, right? Because you you know here you got Delzad and you got Tavares and you know we had a pretty good team. Brett Parham ended up scoring 50 goals that year, and mm-hmm. you know so we had we had some pretty good players. And so you just say, okay, what if I added guys and so you just kind of had conversations along those lines too. So it just, it, it went, went kind of every direction. Um, and yeah, in fairness, the deal didn't get consummated right till, you know, till basically January 8th or January 9th, two days, be- a day before the, the deadline. Can I just follow that up real quick? Farzi? Yeah. Was, was he close to going to Windsor? Cause I no. know Taylor Hall spoke out publicly that he wanted JT to come. So no. Once Windsor made the deal with Kitchener, because Windsor made yeah. the, the deal with Kitchener, that I think I think uh, that was it. They, they were they were they were done. So we we've talked about a lot of varied roles here, Chris, and we didn't even get into uh, yet. But uh, scouting for the Pittsburgh Penguins, we've got head coaching, junior, major, junior, assistant coaching, major, junior, hockey Canada, general manager, scout. Is there is there an area of, of the game where you worked that you preferred over others? Wow. Um, yeah, it depends on the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I, I've always viewed myself ultimately as a coach, Mike. Um, and But what I, I think I came to realize for me, just personally, I think at the OHL level, um, I believe I would, I'd be a better general manager. Um, and I just, you know, you kind of, you know, you, I mean, you do, as you do self-reflection and, and where I feel I think I would have been best served would have been being at the GM spot at the NHL level. I love scouting. It was it was it was fun. It's, uh, you know, especially with the organization I work for. Um, you know, again, you talk about leadership and, and gleaning championship habits and a culture and, you know, again, standards of excellence. And, and you know, those are the things I took away from that experience um, alongside a Stanley Cup ring. Um, and, and, and for me, it was like, it was such a, a great kind of, uh, rejuvenation, I guess, you know, of, of where I was after my Oshawa time had come to an end and I'd returned to St. Mike's as a teacher. And then, you know, what ended up ending my scouting career with Pittsburgh at that time, I ended up becoming director of athletics at St. Mike's. So just the timing of everything. Otherwise, you know, I, I probably would have stayed in scouting and, and, uh, cause it, it was, it was, uh, it was a blast. It was a blast. Do you have that ring on that uh, shelf behind you there? I don't. I, I, I have it in a safety deposit box. I, I, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, if someone talks about the ring, we got, we have to ask to see it. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you take us through some of those processes? Because this is one of the parts of the game that, that fascinates the hell out of me, to be honest with you, Chris, because, you know, Chris and I, when we're around the rinks and when times are normal, we see scouts all the time. We have all these great conversations. We would have run into you, of course, back in the day and have a little chit chat. But when you're scouting for that team, like, and you're, you're watching player A, B, C, D, whatever. And then what's it like when you're trying to make the case for that player for the NHL organization? The nice thing about the Penguins at that time, I'm not sure if they still do this, but there is a set, there's a kind of like a strict criteria. And I'm not, I don't believe any, all NHL teams do that. Um, so we kind of had a strict criteria by which we were, we were judging players and, and scouting players. And, and so, and that meant like there were some pretty good players in the Ontario Hockey League who, who you know, the, the region I was looking after that might not have ever kind of been made, you know, made our list because of, 
they might not have been meeting that criteria. So it was a little bit different in that regard. So when you're, you go into a rink, but you have an idea, right. In terms of who's who. And, um, and then, but you also want to watch too, to see how growth and development happens, you know, over the course of a season. Um, and that, that part was always fascinating to me. Um, the thing that I really liked too, was, you know, is, is taking, looking at, at, at like going into a rink and, and then seeing a, a rookie, let's say, and, and seeing how his trajectory would go over his two years before his NHL draft year. Um, and, and then, then there's obviously the, the free agent guys that, you know, didn't get drafted, the Mangiapanis or these, you know, Anthony Sorelli's and Oshawa. Like I, you always like think, wow, like those guys are coming out of the, out of the, out of the woodwork. And so there's, there's no shortage of, uh, of players to, to see in the scout and, and to really kind of glean and take, take kind of a, uh, a liking to. And then when you go to bat, you're in your meetings and you're basically, you know, you're, you're just, you're, you're talking about their, their strengths within those criteria that we had. Um, and typically our, our head scout and, you know, that he would see every, you know, all the crossover, he'd be the crossover guy to be able to see and, and kind of, you know, agree or disagree and, and whatnot. But um, it, it, there's a great process. It was a great process. Very, very kind of, uh, you know, open, you know, it was, it was an open kind of dialogue and, and, uh, and it was, it was great. It was great. If I could just follow up there real quick, Popey, uh, as a development league, because there's all kinds of talk about where the best place is to take that step that'll get you to the National Hockey League. How's the Ontario Hockey League, from your experience in it, doing as a development league? I think, well, again, I think it's it's the best development league in the world. And not to bore, it's obviously the tagline, but it's certainly, for me, um, I mean, it, it truly is. And, and um, you know, I I just think from everything, I mean, the coaching's outstanding, the, you know, the, 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 the lifestyle is very, you know, very similar to what players are, you know, looking at in terms of when they get to be, you know, be pro, but they're put in situations where, you know, um, in an environment where they, 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 they can develop and, and grow. And I just think it's, uh, it's fantastic. It, it really is. And, and, you know, I, I just, uh, like you get, we, we get kind of, uh, you know, what's the term? We, we kind of get spoiled a lot in terms of, you know, you know, being in this league and being, you know, being able to see, you know, the Kitchener's, the London's, you know, the Guelph's, you know, you guys are kind of in a hotbed of, of like, you know, like, and, you know, Owen Sound, like you think about, you know, yeah, we used to call it, you know, and then Erie, you know, in that division is the American League East, right? Like in terms of that, like just those five teams, but then you, you think about the, the, you know, the other, the East division in terms of, you know, having those, like every year there's, there's something and, and there's players that, that, that gravitate. And I, I just love the, the way the, the ebbs and flows of, of, of team dynamics go and, you uh, you know, how, how teams get put together and kind of rebuilt. And, and, and I, I just love it. I think the OHL is great that way. It is a developmental league for players, but it's also a developmental league for coaches. And one of the former, or one of the current assistant coaches of the Stockton heat worked with you in your time in Oshawa and Joe Sorella. I love Joe from his time in the Sioux and talking with him there. I also former NHL and one heck of a tough guy. What was he like as a, someone to work with? He was great with, you know, working with me and, um, you know, from just from an experiential point, Chris, you know, both as a player. And then he had, he had been an assistant coach with George Burnett in Oshawa previous to, and then he was in Peterborough as well. Um, his just, his personality was fantastic. He was just, he was just great to bounce ideas off and he was great to bring ideas to the table. Um, the, 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 the guys loved the, the players loved them because he just, he just had this way about him. He just kind of like this easy way about him. And uh, 
he was never one of those guys. Hey, I played X amount of years in the NHL. Like he just was, it was all about coaching and, and, and teaching and, and making sure the players, you know, understood what was going on. And um, so he was always about serving of the players, which was fantastic. And, uh, and he and I just, we, we got along so well, we got along so well together and uh, yeah, he, he was a great guy. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that he's still in the game because he clearly has a passion for it. Right. Speaking of people you've worked with, Dips, and, and we talked about books earlier. Uh, I got this book here called Power of Teammates. Now, I'm going to be honest with you right now. Jim Rooney, I can understand. How you get yourself tangled up with a guy like Daraj, I haven't the foggiest, but that's that's your business. How did uh, how did teammates come about? Yeah, thanks for asking that. And and I think uh, the, the, the way, you know, Raj and I, so backtracks in, in 20. 2018, 2019, I got an opportunity to coach in Switzerland with another former OHL coach, Greg Ireland, um, and Greg, you know, former Noah Sound. Um, and, and so coming back off of, uh, after that experience of, of coaching in Lugano, um, you know, I, Raj shot me a note. We just kind of got talking, um, just catching up on things. And, you know, it just, you know, Raj is a f- friendly guy, likes having conversations. So we just caught up and then you know, I talked to him about, you know, my, you know, stuff that I, you know, while I was in Switzerland kind of doing, you know, writing a lot of notes and I'm a quote guy and, you know, accumulation of things and leadership stuff as we talked about. And, you know, I was looking for ways in which to, co- you know, kind of collate all that stuff. And so I was throwing that, the idea around him with him and he kind of said, yeah, you know, that's not a bad idea. And, and then, you know, he kind of, we left it. And then all of a sudden, you know, in June of that year, we, you know, he says, Hey, meet me down at the Madame center, the old Maple Leaf gardens. And, uh, you know, Jim Rooney's going to come and join us, you know, because him and Jim had, had been talking. So that, that was kind of like our first meeting, the three of us. We kind of threw around all these ideas. And all of a sudden, we just started, you know, one thing led to another. We did a, we started doing like a podcast. It was all about these kind of leadership and, you know, with Jim's experience, both from an education perspective and, you know, as being a principal and that, but also on the sports side, both with, you know, obviously, you know, the, on the OHL side with Guelph, but then the baseball, like he's just got a wealth of experience. And then obviously Raj has a wealth of experience and, you know, through his broadcasting career and, and you know, and uh, being involved with, especially in, in the OHL as well. So it just kind of culminated. And then, you know, o- over time, we just kind of said, Hey, let's, let's put some stuff together. And the book was born. We had Raj on just a couple of weeks ago. He had nothing but positive things to say <laughs> while we were recording. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I did, li- I did listen to a part of that. Sorry to cut you off, Chris. And no. you know, I caught the one thing where yeah, I think he did a Sherry Bassin impersonation. It's good. Eh? Told, told that great story about Sherry. And, and I had said to him, I think we talked last week or two weeks ago or whatever it was. And I said, that's a fantastic, uh, fantastic story first. And then the great impersonation. If I can, can I tell a Sherry story? Absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and, and it's actually, it, it's very, um, it was very personal for me. And that's why I want to share it because I think it's just kind of give you the measure of the man. Um, so 2011, 2012, okay. That hockey season um, I'm going into the season as coach and GM, but um, two days before training camp starts, my wife gets diagnosed with breast cancer. Nobody knows. I just share that with my, with my ownership group and I share it with my coaching staff. I didn't, you know, the players didn't know. And we just kind of went through the season, you know, but it was kind of a, like I, it was just, it was a challenging time. Come uh, right around, I, I guess, October-ish, end of October, you know, uh, 
Gary Agnew comes in as the head coach, Chris DePiro, I go up and just, and become the G and stay as GM. What happened was at that point in time, somehow the story gets out. Fine. It happens. I kid you not. It was like a, within, within a, a day, I'm driving home from the rink in Oshawa and, and I lived at the time, probably about an hour away. So I was commuting an hour every, every, every day, uh, both ways. So I come home and I, Get, get in the house and my wife's on the phone and she's talking saying, you know, she's, you know, oh, thank you. Thank you. And anyways, Sherry Basson called her and, and just kind of, you know, wanted to share, you know, Hey, you know, I'm thinking of you just really, you know, anything you need. And, you know, I just, and it, it was like one of those moments where she got the phone I was like, you know, and she's like, that was Sherry Basson. And I was like, ah, oh, that's cool. Right. Like it was just, you know, he doesn't have to do that, but that kind of gives you the measure of the type of person that he is. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I wanted to share that because I think it was important because it, it meant a lot to, to me and my wife um, and just kind of give you the measure of the man. And, and, you know, that's part of working in the OHL when it does, it kind of creates a little bit of that fraternity as well when you have that, those kinds of moments, right? On that note, how tough was it for you to be a GM, be a head coach, have ready, you know, you're getting ready for training camp, but your wife Kelly is going through that and then having to come home and instead of venting to her about like, oh, darn, you know, this Calvin DeHaan didn't you know, make an outlet pass. And she's like, yeah, well, we've got bigger things to worry about here, Chris. Yeah, it, 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 it prioritizes things really, really quick. It really, really does. And it just and, you know, we, we had, you know, we've got two kids and the whole bit. Right. So you just kind of you kind of go through that and, and it was kind of you, you, you realize what to separate things. And, and it really was an easy separation. So when I walked in the house, it was it wasn't about, you know. Calvin DeHaan or anything, you know, it was just, it was, it was more, you know, how can I help, you know, what can we do right now? And, and uh, so, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was an easy prioritization time for sure. How's she doing I like today? how I said Calvin, sorry, go ahead. I was, go. Oh, she's great. Everything's knock, knock on wood. Thank you for asking that, you know, health is great and it's been, so that's 11 years ago, right? So it's, yeah. uh, you know, we're, we're kind of, uh, we're 10 and a half years ago, but yeah, so it's, uh, it, it's all good. All good. I was just going to say, I like how I said Calvin DeHaan didn't make an outlet pass. I don't think he ever missed an outlet pass. I should have said that he missed a body check yeah. or something. Chris, I'll tell you, I, I can say this. When he first, so again, these are things like, so I credit our our scout, our previous scout, in, you know, in Ottawa, Pat Dominico, who, who's, uh, whose daughter just got named assistant coach of Team Canada on the Olympic team. But um, Pat scouted Calvin and he was five, five foot eight, 130 pounds when we drafted him in the second round and, and it was funny because then he played a year of tier two and, you know, he had a lot of scholarship offers. And at that time I, be, I took over his gym and kind of took a couple trips up to the Ottawa area, up to Carp where he's from. And I got, you know, I had I got some wind from a couple of NHL scouts saying, Hey, this guy's going to run your power play if you, if you can get him. So long story short, we end up signing him. He comes into camp and he had this panic threshold that I've never seen before. He'd he get a puck like in front of our own net and like a lot of D are kind of like, okay, it's hot potato. Calvin just kind of had this way about him. He just kind of would just everything stood still and he had his mobility was so good. And he had this panic threshold. He would just kind of slip out into the open and then, you know, it's an outlet pass and we're out of the zone or, you know, he was just so good. He was just so good. He was so good. There was all that talk about him not being a physical enough defenseman. And you watch the guy skate. You're like, he doesn't need to be physical. Look at him move. He, he got, he just, he would just get, in, he'd get in your way and just kept, but he would, 
he he was the king of the contain. Like he would come at you and close close gaps and then be able to just kind of ride you out, take the puck, and then just go on his way. All in one, all in one fell swoop. It wasn't like it was like a, a series of events. It was all together because he just he had and he had his intelligence level was off the charts. Off the charts. You just made me think of something else. And this is the great tragedy of East West not playing as often. So I didn't get to see you behind the bench as many times as I would have liked. But you talk about panic threshold with Calvin DeHaan. What was or is the panic threshold of Chris DePiro, the head coach? Wow. Um, yeah, you know what? I think I would have been pretty good in, in, in terms of staying in control. Um, with that said, I think there would be times I probably would would kind of you know lose it a bit, and 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 it it, it would vary. It would vary, Mike. Um, and in terms of you know whether it be a mistake or a missed call by a ref or whatever, it just. But I think I was I I, I like to say I've been you know more in control, and uh, um, it, that would be my my kind of way of of, of saying because I I for me being behind the bench, I love being behind the bench. It just game days were fantastic in terms of. You know, what I loved about it was obviously trying to line match and picking, you know, trying to squeeze guys out there a little bit quicker or sooner and, um, you know, know, making decisions like, you know, knowing you have have to, you know, you're down a goal. Okay, well, how do you, what do we need to do here and start thinking ahead? That part I loved. And if you're out of control, you can't do those kinds of things. And I think if you're in control, you you can. And that's the way I always kind of try to guide myself. Your time in coaching dips. Who's the most famous person that's been behind the bench with you at the same time, maybe during a top prospects game? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, what a guy, man. Bobby Orr is outstanding. Like he was awesome that whole week, Chris, he was like, so we hosted the top prospects game in Oshawa and he was so like awesome. Like I just like, it was the coolest thing. And, and the best way I can say it, like that game itself, we were behind the bench and, and just the way we were conversing. And, and again, like he's Bobby Orr, right? Like it's, and, but what was cool is my dad came to the game and my dad afterwards said, like, he said, I'm trying to, he goes, I'm scratching my head. I'm looking at it. He said, I see my son talking to Bobby Orr on the bench as if like they're long lost buddies. Right. Like he said, like, it was just the coolest surreal moment. Right. Um, what, what a, what a guy, what a classy gentleman. Um, and, you know, so, so revered and respected by everybody. Um, what a, it was a thrill for me, um, thrill for my family to meet him. Um, it was awesome. It was awesome. You coached in Switzerland, played in Italy. Uh, from the perspective that you gained doing that, Chris, what would your advice be to a young player that is considering Europe as an option for their pro career? I think if they have an opportunity, I mean, if, 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 if North America gets exhausted, I'd say go for it. Um, from a lifestyle perspective, it's great. Um, you know, you're not playing as many games, uh, travels a little, a little less. Um, you know, I think most, most European countries, you know, will pay not only your salary, but they'll give you a car and an apartment or, you know, place to live. And, uh, um, and it's Europe, you're, you're, you know, I mean, culturally, you know, pick your spot. It's, it's beautiful. Um, you know, and, and it's, I mean, I certainly, again, it's one of those things I, I mean, if, if a player is good enough to play in the national hockey league and the, and the American league and, and kind of have those dreams and aspirations, exhaust it, exhaust it. And then, you know, if, if, if near the end, or if, if players, let's say aren't at that caliber and they can go, guys can make a nice, nice living and a great career over there. And, uh, you know, a number of, number of ex OHL guys have done that and, and, uh, you know, kudos to them. And, uh, 
in various places. You know, there's some great leagues like Switzerland was great. Germany's a great league. Uh, Sweden, you know, you know, the Finnish league, there, there's some pretty, pretty good hockey leagues there. Real quick, just back to Oshawa, but has Dale Mitchell ever bought you a thank you card or like dinner or something? <laughs> yeah. You know what? Um, yeah. Mitchie's a, Mitchie was great. He was great. It, it's uh, that was a, that was a tough one. That was a tough one. You know, you know, you know, having, you know, him go and uh, you know, certainly obviously if it, it was a tough one for the Oshawa generals, not, you know, Dale Mitchell one, you know, some, some, some <laughs> was a great cost, trade for him. Yeah, it was. And, and uh yeah, but he was, he was just, uh, like, there's a guy who you just loved being on the ice. Like he just loved playing. Like, he, I mean, every day he was like smile on a face. Like he had this thousand watt grin and that just, you know, lit up a room and uh, on the ice every day of practice, he'd do that. And then, you know, afterward, he always wanted to work on stuff after practice. And uh, I mean, I really, as an assistant coach, kind of him and I, you know, and a bunch of the, the other 89 birth class guys that, uh, that he was a part of, uh, got to know well after practice in terms of working stuff on the ice. And, and Dale, Dale was a great, uh, great general, but obviously had a great career in, in Windsor as well. Hope he's going to have his inevitable, just one more question coming up pretty soon dips, but I've, I, I've been curious about this for a long time. If I remember it correctly. Um, so a, about a decade ago, I'm, I'm working at a sports radio station in Toronto and every once in a while, you know, I would just exchange these messages and, and I seem to recall, them coming in pretty early in the morning and i'm like i i gotta be up for a radio show i don't know what you're doing at this hour of the day but i just wonder what a day in the life is like because i get the sense of this really driven guy this voracious reader he he's partnered on a book with jim rooney and roger lejoie what's a typical day like for you does it start at three o'clock in the morning i remember sending you stuff (laughs) and going like what are you like you're 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 like you're inspiring like you're going doing this toronto state and you're back in kitchen like you're you're amazing that 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 that, that period of time. And I remember that very vividly. Um, I'm, I'm an early riser and I enjoy getting up early because getting things, you know, kind of done. Um, so, I mean, through, you know, I guess right now I'm back, I'm, I'm working at St. Mike's in Toronto and I live North of the city. And, uh, you know, so if I don't get up early to beat the traffic, I'm going to be <laughs> locked, locked into traffic. So it's kind of a, 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 like you have to, but typically, I mean, I'm, I'm, up at five and, 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 uh, heading down as, you know, down to school. I love getting a workout in the morning before, before the day gets started and just kind of get my head going cleared up and, uh, you know, so you can get, you know, hit the, hit the day and attack the day. And it's always been that way for me in terms of that, let's, let's attack the day and, uh, kind of like a little mantra for me. And it's something that I, I, I live by. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, but it, it's funny because, you know, when, when I remember you do, you know, talking to you about that, it was, you know, at that time I was, I was teaching and then I was, I was, uh, I was doing some scouting with Pittsburgh. So you just, and so you literally running around the province and then getting back, you know, coming home and, you know, it was a tighter turnaround in terms of not going to bed early. Cause you know, you're driving in from, you know, wherever like Kingston and all of a sudden you got to get up and, you know, at five o'clock the next morning to go back to work. So, um, but I, I enjoy getting up early. It's uh, it's one of those things. We were both at an interesting time in our lives then, weren't we, with the schedules we were trying to keep us? We had each other. We were like a support group of some some kind. Yeah, I, I remember that vividly. You were doing all the fan stuff, and uh, yeah, yeah. Dips, you like to say I, you want to attack the day. I attacked the night. I went to bed at 2.30 <laughs> this morning. I attacked the night. Uh, That's great. Dips, I, I, have a, I have a question for you because you talk about how you're a quote guy. You see the library behind you years and years of coaching and mentorship and everything 
Mike and I have had numerous discussions about this on our broadcast over the years. And I'm wondering if you can help shine some light to Mr. Farwell. How much can a coach affect the game? Wow. Um, yeah, I, 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 that's a great question. Um, I think the coach's greatest impact is in the culture that's created along with the manager. Um, I think the coach's greatest impact is the day-to-day habits that they instill and, and, and the details that they want to have kind of uh, in, that are important to them without, uh, you know, sacrificing on principles. Um, I'm, I'm, I just think I'm big on that. During the course of an actual game, you got to let up, you got to let the players do their thing. You know, you turn it over to the players. Um, you, you, you do your work in practice. You do your work in video. You do your work in the preparation. You turn it over to them. But I think where a coach can really have an impact during the course of a game is the ability to, to make an adjustment, to, to slip a guy out, you know, uh, you know, give him an extra shift here or there. Um, you know, find different things, you know, that might work. Um, recognizing certain combinations of, of players are working together. So I'm going to get, I'm going to double shift them a little bit here against maybe the other team fourth line if they're on the road, you know, and those kinds of things. Um, I think there's subtle things during the course of a game. I think a coach can have an impact, but I think really the greatest over the course of a season, it's all those, it's the culture stuff. It's the environment. It's, it's what you tolerate and what you don't tolerate. And, you know, I guess the standards that you create. It reminds me of uh, a quote Pat Burns had about Doug Gilmore back in the day when he was coaching the Leafs, obviously. And he said, if, if uh, killer's coming back to the bench and his face isn't yet as red as a baboon's butt, I just tell him to stay out there. <laughs> I, I suspect there was probably a time or two dips that when JT was coming back to the bench, you're like, no, no, just, you know, you're staying, staying out there a little longer. Just keep, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. That's it. That's it. 72 goals as a 16 year old. 16. Yeah, the Wayne Gret- you broke the Wayne Gretzky record. Yeah, that was sixteen. <laughs> I do, I I do have one more. Farzi, do you have another one or no? Yeah, I'm going to be real quick. Well, sure, go, go for ahead. it. No, yeah, well, go. I just wondered with and and Chris just reminded us again that you're a quote guy, a, a voracious reader. Uh, what's your what's your favorite? Do you have one that you live by? Uh, do not go where the path may lead you, but go where there is no path and leave a trail. It's one I that like that. Uh, just always. It's always one that. Uh, I believe is, you know, just, I think it speaks to regardless of whatever you do in life. It's just, you know, keep forging new, new, uh, new roads, man. And that's why I say keep attacking days because you never know. You never know what, what opportunities present themselves. Well, judging by some of the names we've brought up, the path that you've led, people have followed you and then they've started their own path towards championships because we talked about Dale, we talked about Del Zotto, obviously with the Stanley cup. I just have a, I wish we would have ended on farewells because that was really nice, but I, I, <laughs> I, I have a quick question. Thunder road or born to run. And is Darius Rucker better as Darius Rucker or should he stick with Hootie? Okay. Oh. I can answer both of those questions, but I'm sorry. I'll leave it to our guest. So, so you know, you notice the Bruce Springsteen behind me and, and uh, you, you, you challenge me with those two. I mean, I, I they're dependent upon the, 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 the the vibe I'm in, the mood I'm in, and they're both great songs, right? Um, Thunder Road and, and Born to Run. Um, but my favorite Springsteen song is Racing in the Streets. Tonight, tonight, the strips just right. I want to blow them off in my first heat. Summer's here and the time is right. Racing.
that would that supersedes them all. Um, I like the Ernest Rucker and Hoogie and the Blowfish, but I like his country bent that he's got going on the last number of years. I think he's he's kind of hit his his stride, and I think he, uh, you know, they say people know what they should be doing. I think he knows what he should be doing. You know, I think it's one of those things where so. Yeah. Absolutely right on Rucker, and <laughs> you, you can't pick a bad song from. The, there's just no way to pick a bad song from the Boss. There's no way. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I, I was doing some research, and I was watching an '09 interview you did with a pimply faced Steve Dangle, which is hilarious because Dangle looks like he's 11. <laughs> you know what? And, that 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 was the day of the draft. Like uh, the, it was yeah. not the day of the draft. We were we were leaving to go to Montreal for the draft that that that, that day. So yeah. Yeah, you and your assistants were going down and doing a coach's clinic the day before, and then round one on the Friday. And he he asked you what's going to be in the in the cassette player. <laughs> and you, you said Spring, Springsteen and Hootie, and I thought, oh, we got to end on a end on a high. Yeah, Apple Apple Music wasn't around then. <laughs> yeah, these kids today have no idea how tough it used to be turning over records, flipping to the other side of the cassette, all that stuff, right? That's right. That's right. That's, uh, that's I like awesome. the Sinatra book up there, though, too. That's nice. So I love um, Sinatra. Huge Sinatra fan, too, Chris. Um, and, and I saw him in concert actually in 1989 at the Sky Dome uh, with Liza Minnelli. It was supposed to be Sinatra, Dean Martin, and and uh, and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. But um, at the one time, I think Dean Martin had passed away. Sammy was was gravely ill, or vice versa. So, so Liza Minnelli pitched in, and and uh, so I, me and my dad actually went 1989 to watch Sinatra and Liza Minnelli. And uh, um, I'm yeah, huge Sinatra fan myself. That's awesome. That's a fantastic. So show. cool. Yeah. Uh, Dips, this has been. <laughs> This has been great. Thanks for making the time for us to join this podcast. Uh, really love hearing the stories and it's great to see you. We'll make sure we're not strangers. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me guys. And, and it was great to be able to be on with you guys and, and, and share some of these stories. And uh, you know, it's a, it's a lot of fun to, to talk about, you know, the, the game, ultimately the game of hockey that we all love and, and obviously we all play a part in it. So thank you for having me and uh, certainly look forward to connecting down the line. Do did will the story of people podcast is now available on the crier media network the first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories ready tara sloan from the san jose sharks undercurrent podcast at nbc sports marianne iveson from iveson voice and the let's take this outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.